in the early years that my wife and I were married, um, she knew I had a strong... When uh, I'd go to the stores and stuff, my wife would head off to the uh, shopping, wherever it would be, and I would always try to find somebody who was one of the oldest people in the store. And I would try to find somebody who was one of the oldest people you think, why is this guy even out? And because I like to talk to World War II veterans. And the United States had quite a few of them. And I would want to talk to them just to thank them for their service mainly. That was really the most important. I just want to thank them for their service in the military and their fighting in World War II. And then if they didn't mind talking about it, I would like to, if they would say, hey, you know, what was the, I'd always ask them, what was the funniest thing that happened to you? And they don't mind telling you the funniest thing. And as they move on a little bit further, sometimes they'll tell you things a little bit more. And I got to talk with probably 50 to 60 different World War II vets who shared with me various stories over the year. And uh, one of the ones that pertains real well to the, to the message this morning was we had a guy that came to my place of work and he told a story. He said that it was D-Day. Most people know the story of D-Day. It was the landings at Normandy. There's hundreds of thousands of troops trying to storm the Normandy beaches. The Germans were set in defense, and we know the story really well. This guy wasn't on D-Day. He was there the next day, and he said that the beachhead was kind of established. There were still a lot of ships going in, wounded coming off. Still the German artillery from deep end was coming out. Kind of had a, a foothold, but it was still really, really rough fighting. And he said that as they got in the landing craft and they're going up, they knew their destination. They looked on the map before they got on there and said, at the edge of town, there's a church and it has a big steeple on it. And you'll see the cross at the top of the church and stuff. He says, that is our goal for tonight. It's only a few hundred meters inland, but our goal is just to make it in there as a platoon and get to that church. And that's where we're going to dig in for the night. And he's thinking, okay, that's not too bad so far. That sounds pretty good. So he knew where he was. He knew where he wanted to go. Just remember that. So him and a friend that he had developed during basic training, as the door goes down, a couple big artillery rounds land really close, and everybody's kind of scared because they hit around and they explode. He's like, oh, this is really, this is not good. Um, they may have been strays. They could have been shorts from the, the battleships out at sea. It's hard. He doesn't know. He just said there were some really large shells that landed close to them. So as the group is pushing out into the water and they're wading up and they need to head off this way, he noticed all these shells are kind of landing that way. And he tells his buddy, he says, hey, let's just wander off this direction where the shells aren't landing and we have a better chance of living and we'll just go up to the beach that way and we'll just catch up with them after we get up on the beach. You kind of see where this is going. As things went on, the shelling intensified, they crawled up further that one direction, they kind of got separated. And they're laying up on the, the first row and they're around some bushes and stuff and they're just laying there for a little while letting the, the shelling subside as allied forces tried to subdue this artillery that was coming in. So the afternoon wears on and they've crossed the road and they've kind of lost track of where their platoon is. They didn't see them. The platoon headed off this way and they just kind of crossed the road over this way. And as they pushed in further, he said they went about 100 or 200 yards in and they're in some heavy trees and his friend nudged him. He said, hey, look, there's the steeple. And he's like, hey, we happen to stumble upon the right spot. We're, we're, we're closer than I thought we were. He's like, okay. So it's getting, they kind of are low crawling because they're not wanting to get shot or anything. So they're low crawling in and um, they're taking their time and they move in. And as they get close enough, they can kind of see through the trees. There's a bunch of guys standing you know, waist deep and they're digging in foxholes. And he's like, oh man, they're already here and they're already digging in and we're late, we're gonna be in trouble. 
He says, let's just crawl off to the end, all the way on the end, and we'll just dig in there real fast, and maybe they won't notice that we were missing. And he's like, yeah, good idea. And so now it's around sunset. There's a little bit of light in the sky, he said, but there's, you can see stuff, but the colors are fading. And so he says they crawled onto the end real quick, and they both, just fast as they could, just started digging, and they took their tops off because they were all sweaty and wet from the water, and they are trying to let them dry out. And so they were about, it'd be about 10 to 12 meters from the guys beside him, and they were at the very end. And he sees this guy walking around the back, and he's got his hands behind his back, like he's in charge. And he's just walking slowly, and everybody's digging, and the, guy, the guys beside him aren't paying him any attention. And he says, we've dug for about five or 10 minutes, and this guy walking around the back with his hands behind his back stops at the second foxhole over. And he says, they kind of stop and look over, and the guy says something to the guy in the foxhole, but it was in German. They've just snuck up and dug in alongside the German troops. And he goes, so I was like, I asked, I said, well, what'd you do? He says, we got out of there. We grabbed our rifles, we got our stuff, we, we got on out of there, we were in the wrong spot. Well, that's kind of relates a little bit. When you get, sometimes you find yourselves in hard situations in life. That's a hard situation. That's not a, not a place you really want to be. So we just left, we got to, yeah, that's not a good spot to be in. And so hard situations come up about in our life. And many times we're like those, those troops. We are in life right now and we know where we want to be. We know the end goal of where we need to get to and we think we know the best way to get there. God usually has a different plan in our life than what we think is the best way to get somewhere. We have the idea that we want to be, uh, have a spouse and we want to have a family and a house and kids and a nice job and be able to, just all these kind of great plans. That's not God's plan for every single person. And there's a really good example in the Bible of somebody who has a, a journey in life that's nowhere what he expected to be. And that's in the life of Joseph. And we're going to look at that this morning. I hope that this can be an encouragement to you because the the title I titled this morning's sermon is Finding Joy in Hard Times. And I know many people are having a lot of hard times, and everybody goes through them. You could be going through great times right now and thinking, hey, everything's fine. That's fantastic. But we all go through hard times. And when those hard times come, hopefully we can look back on the principles of Scripture to guide us through hard times. So let's, let's look here and... Um, there's a, I'm going to give a spoiler alert first. I'm going to read the very end, and then we're going to go through it, and then we'll go back and we'll, we'll build back on the end. Because the very end of it is of Joseph's life is in Genesis 50, and verses 19 to 21. I'm just going to read a few verses here, and then we'll get into the, the main text. It says, and Joseph, this is what he says at the very end. And Joseph said unto them, he's talking to his brothers here after his father has died. He says, fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. To bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now, therefore, fear ye not, for I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. That all came about from Joseph as a young child, not quite having a good relationship with his brothers. That's probably an understatement. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the story of Joseph, we're going to we're going to dig into it pretty good here this morning. But if you would, go ahead and turn, let's back up to the first part of that story. If you have your, your Bibles with you, turn back to Genesis 37. Because times will get hard, times will get difficult. And again, we all have that perfect map in mind of life, of what we want in it. And Joseph gives us an example of when he starts out. And if you have your, your scriptures, turn to Genesis chapter 37. We'll start in verse 2. 
And the part we're going to read is down to verse 11, and then we'll, we'll, we'll stop along the way, and you can see the, the, as it applies as we go. And I'll try to talk a little slower. I know I talk fast, but I'll try to slow it down just a little bit. So I, I, do want, I really feel that this can help so many different people. So I'll try to really to, to slow this down. It says in Genesis 37, it says, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah, and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. I'm going to stop there just for a second. For those of you who are in the parenting class on Friday morning, this is a good example of what not to do. <laughs> I know I, Robert and I are in the discipleship class, but those of you who are teaching in that parenting class, if you are a parent and you are loving one of your children more than the other, this is not really part, this is a subnote. You can just write this off as an extra for, for being here this morning. Don't favor your children. Show each of them equal love. If one seems to be more good than one, that's okay. Love them the same. They need to see that consistency in us as parents. And I'm sure they cover that in their class. So if you're not there, be here Friday morning for this Friday school class. So, though Israel, what he's doing, he loved Joseph more than his others, and he made him a special robe so they can even see it. And in verse 4 tells us his brothers saw that their father loved him. So not only did he favor them, but it was obvious. The kids all knew, hey, he loves him more than he loves us. And it says at the end of verse 4, we see that they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Neat little piece that a pastor sent me is really good, and I wanted to read it because it, was, it ties in with that verse. It says this, as Moses writes in verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their fathers loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. It says the Hebrew word is translated peaceably as salam. It says is the word in the Hebrew where there is shalom that was used for a greeting. In other words, the brothers would not even greet Joseph. The anger and frustration, hatred among the brothers wouldn't even greet him. He came in, say he's getting water from the well, say he was at the, at the, the, the pasture, maybe he was out with the animals. They wouldn't even greet him. Good morning, good evening. Nothing. They were says, that's what the literal interpretation they're saying is they were mad. He likes you better than us. He made you a special coat. We hate that. We don't like you. It gets worse. Let's look down in verse... Uh, and verse 5 says, Now Joseph had a dream. And when he had told it to his brothers, see the next, next phrase? They hated him even more. He says, I have a dream. So now it mentions in the next couple of verses what it is. And he said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. He doesn't ask them, Do you want to hear it? He says, Hear this. Hey, I had a dream. You got to hear this. This is good. He says, Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Well, it sounds a little on the arrogant side, doesn't it? So he says in verse 8, he says, And his brother said unto him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you to indeed to rule over us? And look at the next phrase again in verse 8. So they hated him even more. That's a third time in four verses where they hated him, but they wouldn't even talk to him. Then they hated him even worse than that. Now he tells his dreamer, you're going to bow down to me. And then he hates him even more than, there's a real, real 
strong hatred there. And if, as most of you already understand the story of Joseph, that leads up to why what happens next after this. And so it says, for his dreams and for his words at the end of verse 8. So verse 9 tells us in, in Genesis 37, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, in other words, it says he told it to him again. I think that's great. He didn't ask him anymore. He had another dream. You want to hear this one too? No, I had another dream. Get this. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that. Yeah, the other one was good. This one's even better. So he tells him this. Behold, I have a dream, another dream. This, behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. Funny, he had 11 brothers, and the dream has 11 stars. Wow, that's amazing. Okay. So, and were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you are dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. Now, this next part's kind of interesting. But his father kept the saying in mind. His dad knew he was special. His dad knew there was something different about him. So he's like, well, I'm going to have to remember that. And that will come into play later on in the story as well. So, uh, going back over the verses here just for a moment, we see that he was hated by his brothers. That makes it kind of hard on both people. You think, okay, that's hard on Joseph because 11 people hated him. That's hard on the brothers too because they know the dad loved him. So they know that they're kind of like, okay, we know we have to be nice to him because we want our dad to also have some sort of favor with us. But it's a real hard situation. And the more these things developed, the more they hated him. And the more they developed, the more he hated him again. And, and if you look at later on, and we're not going to read through it all together right now, but in, later on in Genesis 37, after this, the brothers are out in the field, and the dad tells them, hey, go see what happened to them. You could probably glance down and see the next one. And he says, okay, I'm going to go where they, where they are, supposed to be minding the herd or pasturing the animals. And he goes there, and they're not there. And there's some other guy there, and the guy says, no, they're not here. He says, but I heard them talking, and they went, they departed out to this other place. Well, he's already, as you can see, a tattletale from the, the first part of the verse I read. He says he brought his bad dad back a bad report. So he's telling on them, hey, dad, they're doing bad things out there. They're not doing this. You told them to wash up the pigs or wash up the goats or wash up the sheep, and they're not doing it. So he's going back. So now his dad sends them out to see what his brothers are doing. They're not where they're supposed to be. They're in a completely different town. So he goes over to them. So now, with that in mind, all this background that we've had, Bring up this point. The brothers see him coming. Oh, he's found us. Oh, no. This is where the brothers make up the plan to take him, put him in the pit, pull him back out, sell him to the merchants that are going by, and sell him off into Egypt. Things for Joseph have gotten really hard. At the end of this part of the story, Joseph is in Egypt. He's not with his family. He's not with his mom's dad. He's not with any of his brothers. Even though they didn't get along real well, he's not with them. And now he's off in a foreign country by himself. And things are getting pretty hard. So hard times will come and difficult times will come. And that, that's point one. But, but point two is that hard times may get harder. If those of you do take outlines, point two is hard times may get harder. They may get more difficult. If you initially said, you know, my job is barely able to provide enough for my family. 
My car is making funny noises. Yeah, it still runs, but it doesn't sound right. The kids' clothes are starting to wear out, and there's no chance for promotion at work, and I can't get any overtime to have any extra income, and things are kind of hard. We're just, we don't have any, it's not great food. Okay, we have food on the table, but it's not, we don't have really good food. Times can be difficult. Times can be hard. But unfortunately, times can get even harder. Got to tell you another story now, because again, I, I love talking to World War II vets. Back in high school, I had a, a civics teacher who was a B-17 pilot. B-17s were the big four-engine bombers that America had, and they mainly used them over Europe. And he was a pilot in it. And so he was a, a nice old man, and I believe he was a believer. And I would ask him off and on. So over the, over the year that I was in his class, he had told us a story, because we knew that he was a POW, that he got, he got uh, captured by the Germans. His story is really interesting. It fits right in with this morning's sermon, so I threw this one in too for free. And he said they were out on a mission and they're flying. They're just about to the site where they need to drop the bombs. And so he, at that time, the pilots have to hold the plane completely still. And he says, an anti-aircraft round hit one of the engines. I don't, he told me, I'm sure which one, but I don't remember. And, but one of the engines, and he's losing power in that engine. So that's okay. He's getting ready to drop his bomb load. The plane will be lighter and a, a B-17 could fly on three and a half engines. And so he said they'd just dropped the bomb load, they're turning and heading back. So they're as far from England as they could be. And another round, one of the larger ones, comes up and hits the up, right in between the engines on the other wing, blows out the fuel lines, the controls and everything, both engines lose power, they flame out. Things were bad when you're at three and a half engines. Things got a lot worse when you're on one and a half engines. And so he straightened it out and he was in charge of it. And he knew they were in trouble. They've lost both engines on this one. This plane, he said, was shaking so bad and he's just losing altitude. And they're right just minutes from dropping these bombs. So he told everybody to bail out. He said, no chance. We cannot make it back to England on one and a dying engine and all this other, so he told everybody to bail out. So he's holding the plane still, and he said that everybody was grabbing their parachutes, and he told his co-pilot, you grab yours and go, and then I'll set everything, and I'll jump out last. And so, t obviously, the plane is still moving at 100, 150 miles an hour or so at this point, and so he, he steadies it, puts a little bit of a dive, because he remembered all the things they taught him and stuff, so that the plane won't lose control when you let go to go to the escape hatch. So he said it took probably about 15, 20, maybe 25 seconds to get to the door. Well, everybody's been gone for 15, that's, you know, a lot of distance the plane's covering in the 15, 20, 30 seconds. And he says he jumps out. Plane goes on off and, and crashes to the ground. He says, so he opens up his parachute and he's coming down. So he's, now he's trying to see where he's at. And as he's coming down through, he notices there's some buildings down there and there seems to be a lot of organization to him. So he's thinking, well, maybe I'm at the edge of a town where there's like some some, you know, farming something. But as he gets lower, he realizes he has just parachuted out over a German base. Not much chance of escape there. So he went where things were bad. Your plane's on fire, the, or your plane's shot up, it's going down, you're, you're not going to make it back. Things are bad at that point. You bail out, you're okay, but now that gets worse because your parachute's going to land you in the middle of the enemy's base. Things just got worse. Well, in Joseph's life, you're thinking you're away from your family. Things are bad. Things can't get any worse, right? Well, he went and worked for a man by the name of Potiphar. And we're going to pick up the story here 
If you have your scriptures, also go ahead and turn over to Genesis 39. We're going to read through this. We're going to read all the way through it, then we'll, we'll, we'll bring it back in, in after that. It says in Genesis 39, we're going to do verse 7 and then we'll skip ahead because there's a lot of information here and I don't want to go on too long with it. It says in verse 7, And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife, now we're talking about Potiphar's wife here, cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. And in the very first three words of verse 8, says, But he refused. Joseph did what was right there. He refuses. So we'll continue up in verse 10. It says, And it came to pass as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about that, this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out. And it came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in Hebrew unto us to mock us. And he came in unto, unto me to lie with me. And I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass when he heard that I had lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled and got out. I'll say this, we're going to pause here just for a minute, because I've heard pastors say before, you know the Bible contains lies. This is a good example of a lie in the Bible. The Bible's not lying, but she's lying. So the Bible's telling of the lie that she is telling. She's not telling the truth here. He didn't do this stuff. Joseph fled because he's trying to maintain his purity, his innocence, his honesty, and his integrity. And she's just saying, oh, I'm so mad. She doesn't know what to do, so she's mad. And so she's lying here. So, in verse 15, it came to pass that when heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled and got out and got him out. And she laid up her garment by her until her, his Lord came home. And she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass as I lift up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled out. And it came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, which he had spoke unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. So for Joseph, things just went from being in a foreign country without family, without mom, without dad, without friends. And I'm sure they're speaking different language, which kind of go into it later, which we may not get to, but so he's now in a foreign country without family, without friends, and thrown into a prison for doing the right thing. You're thinking, how can this be? There's times in our lives that we may not realize it, but both of these things show that sometimes the will of God contains good and bad things that may happen. If something's bad, you look at, you could look at people like Job, bad things happen, but he was true to the word of God. He wasn't going to defile. He wasn't going to mock God. He wasn't going to curse God and die. You can look at people like Daniel. He wasn't going to give in to, to only pray to Nebuchadnezzar. He was, he was only going to pray to the Lord God of the Bible. And he's thrown into the den of lions. And so sometimes when you're doing the right thing, bad things still happen. And you're like, why? I'm following God. I'm reading the word. I'm being honest. I'm being true to the word of God. 
Our journey, remember back at the beginning, our journey to where we want to be in life is usually quite different from the journey God wants us to take in life to get to where we need to be. And Joseph's journey is like, he's got to be thinking, man, why I'm in prison? What am I doing here? Why am I? Things have gone from bad to worse. The hard times for Joseph have just gotten harder. Well, there's a quote. This is, this is hard to find. I looked up a couple of people who were given credit for it. It's not me, so don't take this as, my, as mine. I just don't know who to honestly give the credit to. It says this. It says, your view of God will determine your view of life or its circumstances. Or your view of life and its circumstances will determine your view of God. Think about that. Your view of God will determine your view of life and its circumstances. Or your view of life's circumstances will determine your view of God. If I let those things that are happening to me day in and day out around the world think, why am my life's rough and I'm having a hard time, God must not be a very good God. My circumstances are determining my view of God. But if I look at it through the prism of Scripture, if I look at it through the Bible, my view of God being sovereign over my life, whatever he wants to choose to do, to send me, to be, to become, the people to be around, the people I'm interacting with, if I realize that that is all God's choosing, then my view of God will determine the circumstances around me. Well, now, the things that I, with that perspective, if I see that, okay, cars falling apart and the people don't like me at work, neighbors, this, that, well, all this kind of stuff, that's because the people around me need Christ. It's not because, oh, God's a bad God. It's God's a good God, and he's wanting to use us to tell people about him. And Joseph would no way have been where he is if he was on his own. God had to move, as you can see, and orchestrate things in this way so that Joseph is there at this time. He doesn't understand why. But you notice he still refuses to give up his integrity, to give up his purity. He follows the, he follows the Lord and does the right thing. It says if, if God is your or our reference point, then we'll be able to make then we'll be able to make sense of what makes no sense. If circumstances are our reference point, then we will neither be able to make sense of life or God. Because circumstances sometimes make no sense. And if that's what we're relying on to have our view of God, it's all backwards. We need to have God as our reference point. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is a great verse that I love to use a lot, and it says, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. That's exactly what Joseph took to heart. That wasn't written when Joseph did this. That's New Testament. That's 1 Corinthians. But that's the exact principles that Joseph was using. He made a way for me to escape. I can leave my coat and I can get out. And he chose the way of escape, that he can bear it. And it ended up getting him in prison. You're thinking, what in the world? Well, in Philippians 4.11, it says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned, this is Philippians 4.11, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Joseph had that down too. He's not mocking, he's not murmuring. Later on, as you'll see in, if, if you go back, and this is over 13 chapters. No way we can cover this in just one morning. And it's a, I've seen people do whole entire, like, 
summer sessions on just Joseph himself, um, that Joseph finds favor with the people even in prison. And he's in charge of the people in prison then. So everywhere Joseph's at, he kind of moves himself up to the best he can get in that spot. And while he's had his time in prison, you remember there's, there's the two dreams again. And he interprets their dreams and the, both come true. And he says, as, they're, as he's leaving, he says, hey, when he restores you back, remember me. I'm still here in prison, so remember me. And for two years, the guy's like, I'm out of prison. See ya. He doesn't say anything to Joseph, doesn't do anything for him. So the hard times have gotten harder. Things have gotten more difficult. But Joseph understands God's sovereignty. And God's sovereignty is that he is over everything I do, regardless if I think it's best for me. My sinful, carnal, imperfect body and imperfect view of the world says, this is my life, that's where I need to be. I need to have a spouse, need to have a car, need to have a house, need to have some land, need to have a good job, need to have this. That's my view. God's view is something totally different. I'm sure when Joseph was 17, he didn't say, I think I'm going to go be second in charge in Egypt. That's a good idea. <laughs> that wasn't on his plan. But we'll see here in a few minutes. Let's get back on the, on the track here. Because I'm getting off track. That's mine. Well, the third point we have here is that no matter what, Christ knows where we are. That sounds kind of simple and stuff, but that's so true. No matter what in life, Christ knows where we are. We can pray to him anywhere, whether you're out on a boat or in a plane, whether you're at work, in your car, driving down the street, wandering through the desert. does not matter. Christ knows where we are. This brings us to Mark chapter 6. Excellent story that Christ, uh, he has just got done feeding the 5,000. I'm finding my sheet somewhere. Oh, there it is. He's just got done feeding the 5,000. He finishes with his feeding the 5,000. They gather up the baskets. They've seen that, that miracle. And we'll pick the story up in verse 45 of Mark chapter 6. It says, And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethesda while he sent away the people. So he's going to send the people away. He's just got done feeding them. And it uses the word constrained here. And I think it's interesting because constraining is nearly a command. It's an insistence. And if you, if you have your ESV, it says that he immediately made them. He's telling them, you guys get in the boat and go. He's not asking, hey, do you guys want to go over there? No, he says, get in the boat and go over there. He constrains them. He commands them to get in the boat and head to the other side. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when evening was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it be a spirit and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately talked with them and said unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto, unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased. And they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. So, again, back up. He's talking to the people. Get in the boat, go to the other side. 
Look real closely here. This is, I sent this to pastor. I was kind of asking for input throughout the week, and he says, that's good. Go with that. So it, it was, uh, he gave me like a good thumbs up with it. So he, sa- he sends them away. They're in the ship. And if you look on the maps and stuff, this body of water is around 13 to 14 kilometers across. He sends them off, obviously, after the dinner. It's still daylight. They're working their way across in the boat. And, but then it says, and at even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea. You can take that as they're in the middle. So they're halfway across. So, you know, they're like a long way from shore on both directions. They're nowhere near the other side, but they're nowhere near where they started at either. And he was alone on land. And interesting, in verse 48, there's really a couple things we really want to point out because this really brings back to us how important how powerful Christ is in our lives, even when we don't realize it. Going back to the point is that no matter where we are, Christ knows where we are. And in 48 it says, He saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. The wind's blowing against them. In our lives, there's times where things are going against us. You're doing the right thing. This is what Jesus told him to do. Jesus said, go there. I'm trying to go there. The wind's pushing the other direction. And I'm just not making any headway. They're toiling. They're fighting with it. And it's interesting because now it says, and about the fourth watch of the night. <clears throat> okay, that's not exactly a term we always use anymore. So kind of looking it up a little bit, the fourth watch of the night was 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Okay, this is a long time ago. They didn't have like floodlights in the harbor. They didn't have, you know, marker buoys out there for the boats and stuff. They're in the middle of the sea. It's dark. It's storming. They can't see the land because they're out in the middle of the water. The storms are blowing. They, it, it's completely black. They're having trouble. They're f- toiling. They're fighting with the rowing. But look back at the first part of, of a verse 48 again. It says, and he saw them. He's like three and a half miles away and he saw them through a storm at nighttime in the dark on a stormy sea. Absolutely. We're thinking seeing with our eyes. Jesus is God. He sees them. He knows exactly the trouble they're going through. He knows the exact trouble we're going through. You could be having trouble with your kids. You could have trouble with your job, your family, parents, your car, whatever it is. We could be having trouble with all these things. Jesus sees us. We could be halfway across that stormy sea of life, and it's dark. We're scared. You know, lights are out. Things get a little scarier when it's darker. You're unfamiliar with your surroundings. But Jesus sees that, just as in verse 48. He saw them toiling and rowing. And just like in the story, Jesus gets up and goes out towards them. In our lives, when we're still doing the right thing that Jesus asks us to do, he's going to come and meet us too. He doesn't leave us in the middle of a sea struggling as a Christian. The hardships in our lives, he just doesn't leave us there. He just doesn't leave Joseph out in the middle of Egypt in prison. All these stories, you can see that the intervention of God Almighty, the hand of God Almighty on each and everything aspect of the life of his disciples, of Joseph, of Daniel, of Job, they were continuing to go forth and do exactly what God said. In spite of what I think is the best goal in my life, somehow I'm in the middle of the UAE. No better place to be than exactly where God wants you to be. Just remember that. Uh, To close out this story, he goes out to them in the fourth watch and comes unto them. Go down to verse 51 again. We'll just skip to that. I know we're 
a little bit shorter on time. He says, because he says, and he went up into the ship with him. The wind ceased, and they were sore amazed themselves beyond measure. If you have your ESV, it also says this. says, he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. They shouldn't be, because two chapters later, or two chapters previous to this, in Mark chapter 4, it's when Jesus was walking on the water with Peter, just two chapters earlier. He does it again. I mean, this is something. They've seen this before. Hey, I've seen that happen before. But there still says that they are utterly astounded. So no matter what, Christ knows where we are. He knows the problems we're having in life. He knows the difficulties that we're going through. And our view and response to a sovereign God is how these difficulties are going to be dealt with. How we realize that God's in charge of my life no matter what. Yeah, I'd like to have a nice job, live in a nice, safe area, and have a nice this and all. These are all the things that I want. In all honesty, and I'm kind of mentioned today talking with some of the people, is that I really want to serve the Lord with my life. And hopefully after 49 years, <laughs> I've learned that no matter where I am, if I'm following the Lord, whether it's in the Middle East or if it's in South Africa, if it's in Australia, could be in South America or in the United States, no matter where I am, I want to serve the Lord with my life. I want people to see Christ through what I do. I don't want them to remember Brian. I don't want them to remember that my family. I want them to remember that there was somebody who loved the Lord Jesus Christ and wanted people to grow in Christ and grow in the Lord and grow in their knowledge of the Bible. And that's what it comes back to from, and knowing that the Lord is sovereign over my life. He sees everything I'm doing. He knows those struggles I've had. There's times where I've been on the phone with my wife as, before I was coming here. I'm literally crying. I can't do it. Looking back on it, I know that's God saying that's exactly right. You can't do it. And that's what sometimes we're stubborn. We're those tough people. I can tough it up. I can make it through. I can push through this. All God wants to hear is I can't do it. So he goes to his disciples, he goes to Joseph. And this brings us to the conclusion is how will we react when the hard times come? Praise God if things are going well, cars running good and everything's going fine. But when those hard times turn to that, okay, the car's making a funny noise to the car makes no noise, <laughs> it doesn't start. <laughs> That's a bad thing. I just have enough, I don't have the greatest food. How about I have no food? Or my job's not able to provide ends, meet, I can't, how about no job? When those hard times get harder, the difficult times get more difficult, the things become, I can't do it. That's when we say, God's like, yep, that's right, you can't do it. That's when we say we need Christ to guide our life. Live by those godly principles. Joseph is saying that, you know what, if I would have pro this is hindsight. It doesn't say in the scripture, but this is if Joseph would have lied with her, he would have stayed in Potiphar's house. He had a good spot there. He was, he was ahead. He was helping. He was over all that he'd done. He even said that Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything except for what he had to eat. He trusted Joseph with that much. Joseph had it cushy. He had it nice. But Joseph also chose to continue to follow God. But things got hard. When those kind of hard things come, maybe you was tempted to steal from your employer, maybe to steal from a parent or a brother or sister or some. Always do the right thing. I'm just going, that's a side note. That's for free. <laughs> Always do the right thing. And God will not dishonor, be dishonored if we do what is right. There's a verse in, I wrote it down here somewhere. 
Maybe not. Okay. And uh, I'm going to look it up because I know it was important. If you have your Bible, turn into James 1, 2, if you would. It's just one verse. James chapter 1 and verse 2. It says, my brother, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Those are those hard, those trying temptations. The ones that are really difficult that we can't seem to understand why they're there or what they're doing. And so how are we going to react when those really diverse temptations come? Are we going to be joyous in it? Are we going to be joyous saying, Lord, I know that you have me here for a reason and I'm going to continue to do what you've asked me to do. Are we going to give in? Are we going to give in to those temptations and fall by the wayside? At the very beginning, we read that out of Genesis chapter 50. Let's read the whole part around it and we can see exactly here what happened now. We go back to verse 15 and if you have your Bible, go and turn to Genesis 50 and 15. We'll read all the way through 21 again. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. That's probably a pretty good thought for their brothers, isn't it? They did a few bad things to him. That's probably a pretty good thought. So they sent a messenger to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Here's another one of those lies. <laughs> Say that. <laughs> Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of thy servants, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Remember back at the beginning when those sheaves were bowing down? This is around 13 years later. 13 years. Do many of us have the patience to wait 13 years for God's fulfillment of a promise? I'd like to say I do, but I doubt it. Joseph stayed true to God for 13 years, refused to give his integrity up, refused to do what was wrong. He just followed the Lord. So, and the brothers say that they are servants. Verse 19 says, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus be comforted. Them, thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So he says, it's okay, I forgive you. Would I be able to do that if I had 11 brothers? I can't say, I'm glad I can. <laughs> I probably couldn't. Joseph had that kind of integrity where he did it. Job would, wouldn't curse God foolishly and die. Daniel refused to give in and, and pray to a false god. There's times where hard times get harder. Difficult times become difficult. You're out in the middle of the sea. Things look black. Things are dark. You don't know what the future has. You don't know if you should go with the wind or fight against the wind. You know what God's wanting you to do, but it's, it's really hard. It's not just hard. It's really hard. And this is where we need to turn and put our faith in Christ. And that's the whole thing today. Is I, my whole point is that what will we do when the hard times get hard? Are we going to give in? Are we going to just go with the wind? Let the wind blow us back to where we came from, where we started. Are we going to 
just be content with where we are in Potiphar's house or are we going to let the Lord continue to use us so that he can save many people when the famine's hit? For hope you guys all know the story of Joseph because I didn't even mention about all of this stuff. But if you don't, read 37 through 50. Fantastic story of God's providence in saving many, many people through one man who follows Christ. So uh, in, in conclusion, last thing I'll say is that if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you know Christ, so you hear his name in the Bible. If, you, if someone says Jesus, yeah, I've heard of Jesus. I heard the pastor and the missionaries that were here a few weeks back, and I hear you know, Kevin last week, everyone's talking about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. If you're not sure of, if Jesus is your personal Savior, I'm really asking you, speak with one of our ministry team leaders, myself, Ray, would love to just sit down and show you what the Word of God says. Not what some special booklet or pamphlet or religion or denomination says. We want to show you what the Word of God says about Jesus and how that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus yourself. That is what our church is here for, to encourage you, to build you up in the faith, to strengthen your faith in the Word of God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. So if you're in a hard time, it may get harder. If you're in a really hard time, keep being honest to the Lord. If you're in a good time, praise the Lord for it. Give him the glory, the thanks that you are, you're doing okay. And keep doing what the Lord wants you to do. But if you aren't sure who this Jesus person really is, you're not 100% sure, come see one of us. We'd really like to just sit down and explain what the Bible says, who Jesus really is, and how he can be your personal savior. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come before you, and we are thankful for the examples you give us in Scripture are clear when we sit down and we open them up and we see what it is that you have for us. And Lord, there's a lot of hard times that come in our life. Some of us are going through hard times this very morning. Some of us are having struggles making ends meet. Some of us can't make ends meet. They're needing jobs, they're needing things. And through all this, Lord, there's some here also that need Jesus. And those are the people Lord really are praying for this morning, that they would realize their need for a saving faith from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we come before you humbly, Lord. Not that people remember a story, remember a funny saying or something. People will remember Jesus. Lord, if there is somebody here this morning who does not know Christ as their Savior, we ask and we pray, Lord, that they would humble themselves and do the right thing. Come and ask one of us. We'll show them humbly through the scriptures how they can know Jesus as their Savior. And Lord, there's believers here that are also struggling and having a hard time. If they just need somebody to pray with, somebody to talk to, someone for some wisdom, some advice, help us to be able to offer that to them equally, Lord. We're here as a church that wants to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know that. Help us to do that in a way that honors and glorifies you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.